Welcome, everybody, to episode 16 of the Flashpoint Podcast. My name is Owen Higgins. I am your host. Today, I'm going to be joined by journalist David Sirota. He'll be on in a few minutes. And we're going to talk about Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer and his retirement and what that means politically for Washington and for probably the rest of the political year, or at least most of it, as we as we head towards the 2022 midterms. A little housekeeping uh, beforehand. Um, if you're listening to this on the app, please hit subscribe to the show uh, so that you can keep up with us. We do about two every week. We got two really great ones coming up next week. We have journalist Abby Martin and economist Richard Wolf coming to join us. Should be two really good conversations there. Uh, you can also follow the Flashpoint's work uh, via the newsletter, which is at owenhiggins.substack.com. That's E-O-I-N-H-I-G-G-I-N-S.substack.com. There you'll find my reporting as well as uh, articles that are kind of based around the stuff that we talk about on here. Um, so uh, I think I'm just going to kind of get right into it here while we wait for, for David. And I'm going to talk a little bit about Stephen Breyer and uh, what it means that he's retiring. So he's Supreme Court Justice. He announced yesterday he's retiring at the end of this court term. He's 83, and he's been resisting calls from progressives and liberals to step down so that they can avoid another Ruth Bader Ginsburg situation. Uh, in other words, to avoid having him die, honestly, uh, in a at, in his seat before uh, Biden can replace him with a Democratic Senate, because obviously if there's a Republican Senate, the chances are pretty high that they would just refuse to seat the replacement the way that they did with Scalia, um, and then did not with Ginsburg. So uh, he's retiring, so we're going to have, so Biden's going to be able to fill the seat and the nominee is going to have to meet with the approval of all Democrats in the upper chamber. And that's due to the party's uh, slimmest possible majority. And senators on the Democratic right, like Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema uh, specifically, are emboldened at the moment. They've had some victories over Biden. And, uh, yeah, they, they're feeling their oats. They're ready to uh, to move on and to kind of control what happens. It's, it's questionable whether or not uh, that means that they're going to hold up the nomination of whoever is nominated to uh, replace Breyer or even stop it. Uh, they have been pretty good on judges as far as, uh, you know, going along with the, with what the party wants, with what the president wants. But, uh, you know, at this point, it's it's still kind of an open question about what they're what they're going to do. Um, so luckily, I have just the person to break down all of this political maneuvering and discussion. Uh, David Sirota, founder of the Daily Poster, and he has an article from yesterday titled "Another Supreme Court Corporatist Would Be a Disaster." And uh, David, do you want to do you want to talk a little bit about your article and and just about who you are? Sure, you can hear me. Yep, I got gotcha. you. Okay, great. Uh, I am David Sirota. I'm an investigative journalist with the Daily Poster. Um, 
Uh, I um, was previously Bernie Sanders' uh, speechwriter. Uh, really took a hiatus from journalism to do that. I had been a working journalist before that. And um, we cover, essentially, we were a follow-the-money news organization. We cover uh, how money influences politics. And um, one of the things we've covered a lot is uh, how the Supreme Court has become a really probably the most powerful weapon for corporate America uh, in American politics, even though it's never or really rarely portrayed that way. That what we learn about the Supreme Court is that it's a place where high profile social issues are uh, uh, arbitrated, uh, but it's not necessarily a place that lots of people think about as the place where economic policy and 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 economic law really happens. But in, in point of fact, most of what the Supreme Court does is uh, stuff related to business, stuff related to the economy, stuff related to the relationship between capital and labor. Uh, and so we've covered that a lot. Uh, and what's happened over the last 16 years under John Roberts uh, is that the court has moved extremely far to the right on economic issues and corporate power issues. Uh, not surprisingly, frankly, because John Roberts had previously represented the Chamber of Commerce, which is the most powerful corporate lobby group in Washington. And they, upon John Roberts's uh, nomination, I mean, they launched, and this is now 16 years ago, they launched a campaign. It was the, what they called was their first campaign back then to really uh, influence the courts, influence nominations, uh, and really take over, in, in, in my opinion, take over the courts, take over, in, in particular, the Supreme Court. Uh, and if you take a look at the data about how much the court, the Roberts Court now sides with the Chamber of Commerce, uh, when the Chamber of Commerce files amicus briefs with the courts, uh, the, the Supreme Court is siding far more now with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce than past courts, than the Warren Burger Court, uh, than the Rehnquist Court, uh, which, by the way, weren't particularly uh, progressive courts. So we're talking right, right. about a really, truly a Chamber of Commerce takeover of the Supreme Court. And I've kind of buried the lead here, but but. Uh, Stephen Breyer is one of the uh, branded as one of the liberal justices, but he has been part of this this problem. He has supported the Chamber of Commerce's positions in his votes on the court uh, a majority of the time. So I think one other thing that that is misunderstood is oh, there's liberals and there's conservatives on the court, uh, but that when it comes to the courts posture towards corporations, big business, and the like, that that liberal conservative split actually isn't as clean as you might think. That in many cases, the so-called liberal judges are just as corporate as the conservative judges. And so obviously when it comes to replacing Stephen Breyer, 
if there's any interest in actually changing this problem, uh, if there's any interest in actually uh, shifting the court back to uh, at least a, a more fair panel of judges uh, when it comes to labor and capital, then, then simply replacing Stephen Breyer with another Stephen Breyer uh, would, would really lock in the chamber's dominance uh, for the next for the next decade, or excuse me, for the next yeah. generation, really. Uh, yeah, that, yeah. Well, no, I just I just wanted to say, um, you know, I feel like we should maybe address the Rehnquist court a little bit before we get into the Roberts court, just because Breyer kind of spanned, sure, uh, you know, that time period. And you know, you you're talking about this kind of split from Roberts, uh, from you know, from Rehnquist. While acknowledging, of course, that the Rehnquist court was also pretty pro-corporate, can you kind of talk a little bit about what it was that made that switch and why there was, why things kind of got more corporate dominated when Roberts came in? Sure. I mean, John Roberts was known as, as I mean, at one point he was called the go-to lawyer for the business community. Uh, John Roberts, uh, by the way, uh, one other uh, unbelievable fact, although entirely believable, is that three of the judges on the Supreme Court were directly involved in the theft of the 2000 election. I mean, it's kind of a shocking thing, uh, but but quite literally, uh, Kavanaugh, Barrett, and Roberts each played a direct legal and political role in that 2000 election. Uh, so it's it's kind of mind blowing every time I, I sort of think about which, it, but which has also been brought up recently. I think like Breyer said at some point in the last year that uh, that he thought that the reaction to that decision was good because people didn't get too angry. I mean that's something to that effect. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, I mean it's not surprising that he said it. It's just awful. I mean he also said by the way Stephen Breyer said, uh, and you can find it in our story today at the Daily Poster, which is um, that he said uh, months after the Citizens United decision. Uh, that the court did not have a pro-business slant, uh, which is, I mean, you, you just have to be either just so unbelievably dishonest or, or living in a different in a different world. Because this is a court now that seventy percent of the of what the Chamber of Commerce wants from it, uh, the Roberts Court is that is seventy percent of what the Chamber wants it gets from this court. That's that's the stat. Now you asked about what what why why that shift well sorry, i mean sorry i derailed that for a second there. no 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 I, I, and and look why that shift is an important question i remember working um in washington uh it was right right around the time when i when i was actually leaving but when john roberts's nomination came up and john roberts the the main thing he was known as plucked from somewhat obscurity was he was, and one person called him this, the go-to lawyer for the business community. He was, he was also known for his passion for, uh, and work in limiting voting rights, which continues to, to this day. I mean, that's, that's his part of his connection to the 2000 election. Um, but, but this was a huge moment for the Chamber of Commerce, which said it was when, when the seat came up, when he said, they said, this is going to be our first campaign where we're going to openly campaign for a nominee. Um, we are going, we have a list of nominees that we are submitting to the president that we want him to pick from, which of course they did. Uh, so the point is, is that this is a, that, that the shift of the court to the corporate right uh, is 
in my view, is part of John Roberts's long-term plan. And that if you watch this court with that in mind, everything starts to make sense. Because there's been this, you know, uh, recently, oh, maybe John Roberts is a moderate. He's like, you know, he's he's kind of unpredictable, which I think is ridiculous. He's completely predictable. Uh, it's part of a very, very long-term plan that all you have to do is pay attention to it. And 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 what that plan is, is to issue rulings that do a couple of things. The through line in the John Roberts court is first and foremost to limit access to plaintiffs who pose a threat to corporations. Uh, That shutting the courthouse door, as it's called, which is essentially in legal terms, denying standing to different plaintiffs uh, is a hallmark of the Roberts court, that a lot of cases are ruling on whether the plaintiff has a right to even be in court. Uh, And there's a through line in a lot of cases in the Roberts court where the court is saying, you do not have a right to be here. We don't even have to rule on the underlying uh, question in the case because you, the plaintiff, does not have a right to be here. This came up recently. The most recent one of this was a got very little coverage, by the way, of course, because corporate media doesn't doesn't cover uh, these uh, issues at the court because corporate media is corporate. But there was a ruling um, in, in a case called Thole, uh, in which the, the which the court ruled that plaintiffs who were suing their pension system and they said, listen, the pension money is being wildly mismanaged with high fees that are essentially the people managing the pension are not following the fiduciary law that says they have to guard our money, the the defendants got it thrown out at the Supreme Court by getting to the Supreme Court to say, well, listen, uh, plaintiffs, if your benefits haven't yet been cut, if the pension system hasn't reduced what it's paying out to you yet, even if you see your pension fund being looted, you don't have standing to be to even be here in court because you don't have a grievance yet until they cut your benefits. So in other words, in that case, if you're a plaintiff and you come in and you say, hey, listen, um, the boat is leaking, right? And 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 I I hired a boatman to, uh, a captain to, 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 uh, or a shipbuilder to build my boat and now the boat is leaking. The the Supreme Court, the Roberts Court is basically saying, well, listen, you, uh, you are people on the boat, you don't have a right to sue the shipbuilder uh, until the ship sinks. Then maybe you have a right to be here, but you don't have a right to, to even be here uh, to, to, to sue the shipbuilder because the ship hasn't yet sunk. You haven't yet technically been hurt. Where did, where so, did Breyer come down on that one? That's a good question. I, you know, I, I didn't look at where he specifically came down on that one. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure. But, 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 but the point is, is, that's one through line of the Roberts court, shutting the courthouse door. The, the other through line is to um, uh, uh, try to reduce the power of federal agencies um, to regulate the economy. So you had a situation, another recent one, um, where I think Breyer was on the Roberts side of this, on the, on the sort of corporate side, was um, whether the National Park Service had the power to stop to halt a pipeline 
that a pipeline company wanted to build through it. It was a relatively jurisdictional issue. Is this, does the National Public Park Service get to decide or does this other agency get to decide? But the point is, is that what they basically said is that the, the Park Service in trying to block uh, a pipeline could be could be ignored. Uh, you had a, a case uh, that that Breyer was on on the corporate side of where uh, a ruling which said uh, recently, which said that the uh, essentially limited the SEC's ability to punish uh, uh, Wall Street companies, investment companies that are already found to have done uh, uh, violated the law, that it, it essentially limited the SEC's ability to assess fines. So it's stuff like that, that 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 that's another through line. Uh, of the Roberts Court. And then, of course, the, the last one where, where Breyer hasn't actually been um, uh, as bad on these issues, but the 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 effort to curtail unions, uh, a series of cases, um, you know, when, especially when the Janus case, which relates to uh, public sector unions. But essentially, the 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 there's been an effort at the court to limit to make it harder for unions to collect dues, to make it harder for unions essentially to to exist. And that's been another through line when it comes to economic issues on the court. And not surprisingly, last thing I'll say on this, not surprisingly, is like, is that that's that's exactly what the chamber has wanted. Uh, that's exactly what the chamber has tried to do. And and I want to add one last thing, I guess, which is that this is not just an issue of capital versus labor. There's also an environmental aspect to this. Go back for a second to the point about um, closing the courthouse door. Uh, there has been an effort uh, by the Chamber of Commerce to shut the courthouse door uh, on in, environmental plaintiffs. Uh, uh, and, and as that relates to, um, to climate change, it's really, really horrifying. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a recent case uh, involving Shell Oil. Shell, of course, has, has um, uh, a connection to Amy Coney Barrett. Her father was a Shell lawyer forever, uh, for a very long time. Um, and essentially there was a, the cities sued, uh, uh, have been suing, um, oil companies saying, listen, um, you know, uh, uh, you have to pay some damages here for the climate problems that you've created, because we're now having to pay, all, spend all this money to, to climate mitigate our cities. Uh, and the Supreme court essentially handed the oil companies a, kind of jurisdictional ruling, can this be in state court or federal court? But point is, is that they basically issued a ruling um, making it harder for cities to access uh, the, the federal courts that they, that they want to access and the state courts that they want to access. So, so it's, again, it's, it's sort of behind this veneer of um, standing and esoterica and, you know, uh, sort of extremely legalistic uh, uh, arguments, but to effectively say, if you even want to come into court and take on big corporations, you can't even, you're, you're not even allowed to be here. Right. The way that you're describing it, it kind of sounds like it's like this vice just kind of slowly tightening, um, just like one one step at a time. You know, one one thing I just wanted to say, you know, before we get to Breyer, just one one point I wanted to, to make about one thing I've noticed with the Roberts court and with Roberts specifically is that Roberts is kind of portrayed, like you said, he's kind of portrayed as a moderate, you know, maybe even like a swing vote. And uh, one of the ways that I've noticed that that's kind of been manufactured in, in his image, you know, as far as political institutions and media institutions go is 
that when it comes to uh, certain social issues, Roberts will kind of vote more with the liberals. And it's always on something that's kind of like basically been settled, like, you know, like gay marriage or, right. or the, you know, uh, parts of the ACA or something like that, you know, stuff that like they can't really rule against. Um, I mean, they could, but, you know, and, and I'm sure that he'll he'll vote against overturning Roe v. Wade as well, though it's questionable whether that'll make a difference. Um, but they do. It, it's interesting the way that they use that. Uh, they use these social issues, these social cases that come in front of the court to kind of portray Roberts as this moderate when, again, like you said, if you look at the whole of his career, you know, when whether it's voting rights or or whether it's, you know, money in politics or any of this stuff, I mean, it's very, very far to the right. And, oh, yeah. And, yeah. I, and I think I think that that Roberts. In playing the long game. He realizes that the court shouldn't get, shouldn't be too egregiously out of line with public sentiment on the hot button social issues that the public and the media does pay attention to. So I I believe that what he's done is... He he is very much a believer, I think, in the idea of the um, frog in the boiling pot. That the frog, uh, if you put uh, a frog, if you drop a frog into, you know, very, very hot water, right when it's hot, the frog will try to jump out. If you put a frog in cold water and you uh, turn the heat up, you know, one degree every hour, as the metaphor goes, the frog doesn't even notice that it's starting to be boiled because it's it's slow. And so I think John Roberts believes in the slow burn. I think that that so that when you see him sort of swinging his vote around a little bit um, and and the other thing that he does is he'll swing his vote. I think you as you alluded to when it doesn't necessarily matter, like when he knows he's already got five votes to do what the court's going to do, he can be the he can then kind of offer a fake fourth vote to the minority to to make it look like he's, you know, he's calling balls and strikes, right? Uh, he's, you know, he's in the middle. He's the new Anthony Kennedy, right? But I think that what he's really doing is he knows that public legitimacy is important uh, to, uh, f- for the court. Uh, uh, and and to, to, for instance, public legitimacy is important to prevent uh Congress from expand and the president from expanding the court, right? So to, to prevent a political movement to expand the court. Because if, if people start to think that the court is a complete sham, there will be more pressure to actually uh, uh, expand the court uh, and, and change the court around in ways that threaten John Roberts's power. Uh, right. threaten- and, that's, and that's why I think that he doesn't want them to overturn Roe for exactly that reason, because that, that would definitely uh, motivate Democrats and their progressive allies to really really push for that in a way that they're not even well it, it, in a way that not even like the people who are on the left who are pushing forward are quite doing it yet right that, right like, no, that, that would that, make it an emergency yes yes exactly but but what's what's really pathetic is that when it comes to the economy john roberts and the roberts court is already an emergency it's just an emergency that 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 is barely paid attention to. I mean, it's really kind of insane if you think about it that 
the economy in our capitalist country is such a focus of news media when it comes to, you know, the business press, CNBC and the, you know, the stock market ticker and all that. Like, this is a focus in one way of our information system. And yet there's almost no focus on the court and how it's rigging that economy and what its effects are on that, uh, on that economy. There's almost no awareness or coverage of that at all. So it, it, it's kind of boggles the mind that repealing Roe v. Wade would be an emergency. And I agree with that. That would be an emergency. And yet kind of trampling union rights, uh, making it impossible for federal agencies to, to crack down on corporate criminals, uh, shutting the courthouse door on climate litigation and plaintiffs and the like, that, that's somehow not considered uh, at the level of an emergency. It's just, it, that, that's just that's just day-to-day business. That's just what, what, what sort of happens. And it's, it's kind of a reflection on, well, on a lot of things. What do we think is important? What do we as a society think is, is important? What is the media willing to cover and cover up uh, when it comes to the court? Uh, and, you know, I don't think it's, it's that the media, I, I don't necessarily think it's like, you know, a bunch of media titans sitting in a, in a smoky room twisting their mustaches. I just think corporate media knows its paymasters. Corporate media probably thinks a lot of work-a-day journalists probably think, uh, you know, business stuff is boring. It's not interesting. It's complex. Like, it's not as exciting as, as hot-button social issues and the like. Even though, to, to be frank, these economic issues, these have at least as much of a day-to-day effect on all of our lives as almost all of the social issues, right? This is like, can you get paid a living wage? Can you join a union? Can you, can you, I mean, there was the OSHA ruling recently. Can you, will your workplace be safe, right? These are hugely monumental issues that the court is, is deciding. And yet it's just, not part of the conversation or the awareness. Yeah, the, like the the incentives don't appear to be there for for the media class uh, to do it, and I think that that's a really good way to put it. Uh, you know, in that it doesn't have to be some sort of conspiracy or anything. It just you know, the, like the incentive structure already exists, so it doesn't it doesn't need to be any more complex than that. Um, so let's. Let's move to Breyer specifically, uh, because I think that you do such a good job of kind of detailing his history and his role in this kind of chamber of commerce, corporate dominated court. Uh, so can you can you kind of give us like a brief overview of his career in the court? Because he spanned Rehnquist and Roberts and, and what he's been doing uh, since joining the Roberts court. Or since sure. I mean, I mean, Steve, took over. sure. I mean, Steve, Stephen Breyer uh, was appointed by Clinton. Um, he is known in antitrust circles, uh, as, uh, one of the, one of the people, uh, who has really been on the side of preventing the, uh, the, the government from, um, having a more vigorous, uh, antitrust enforcement, uh, uh, policy, uh, in various rulings. I mean, they're, again, they're, they're pretty technical rulings. Um, but he is definitely well known, uh, for that. Um, you know, he, he has, uh, over his career, he's sided with the chamber 53% of the time. I mean, it's not, you know, that's not Neil Gorsuch, who's, you know, 80% of the time, 
but this is supposed to be, you know, the, 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 the liberal flank of the court is more than half the time is, is with the Chamber of Commerce. Um, you know, recently he voted to restrict regulators' power to punish Wall Street criminals, as we discussed at the SEC. He voted to uh, empower uh, fossil fuel companies uh, to brush off environmental concerns from federal agencies. That's the National Park Service uh, case. Uh, he was one of the judges who voted uh, against uh, Virginia's uh, state mi- uranium mining ban uh, in a case about that. Uh, he voted to shield companies from liability. This was a big one when they face allegations of human rights abuses abroad. There was that. That's the case. The Nestle case, you know, Nestle basically said, yeah, whether or not we did human rights uh, violations abroad or our contractors did um, because it was operating uh, abroad. Uh, the Supreme Court has no jurisdiction. So that's another, that's a slamming the slamming the door on the uh, on the plaintiffs kind of case. Um, and again, a 27 year career uh, of uh, uh, of 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 helping protect big business from ant- antitrust lawsuits, which is basically limiting the scope uh, of antitrust laws. So that's basically been uh, Stephen Breyer. Now it's worth saying, like. Yeah, he 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 didn't vote for the Janus decision. He didn't vote for the Citizens United decision. He's so so he's it's not like every single thing that he's done is bad. And he's been he's been pretty decent on social on the social issues. Um, But it is to say in the piece that we wrote at the Daily Poster was, you know, if you replace Stephen Breyer with another Stephen Breyer, you're just locking in the chamber's dominance. And what's really, I think, revealing about this is is what's going on right now is that you've seen Biden say that uh, first and foremost, the next nominee uh, will be a black woman. And and he hasn't said first and foremost, the nominee uh, will be somebody who protects workers or he or uh, somebody who. believes in uh, better regulating uh, corporations. And what's what's revealing about this, and it's worth saying, there are plenty of qualified uh, black women potential nominees who are great on worker rights, who are great on economic issues. These things are not mutually exclusive. But I think the tell here is, is that what Biden is saying is, in my view, is that the country, or that this is his belief, that the country wants um, uh, and that he will provide uh, better demographic representation on the court itself. That is the priority. But that, but the priority is, the first and foremost priority is not necessarily uh, uh, the economic issues, the actual rulings. And I think that's a really um, horrible admission because, again, there are plenty of of, of potential nominees uh, who are people of color, who have been underrepresented on the court, uh, who also have um, good records on these economic issues. But the Democratic Party is essentially saying the economic issues are not our first and foremost priority. And that to me is a, is a real statement of what the Democratic Party uh, leaders uh, basically are saying are 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 their 
uh, are their biggest priorities of all. And, right. and, and, and just, it's it just kind of mind blowing, right? I mean, it's, again, it doesn't have to be either or. So I want, I want to be clear. It's like, I, I'm not saying like there shouldn't be a black woman on the court. Of course, I, like, yes, a, 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 a black woman should, should, it's ridiculous that a black woman hasn't been on the court before. That's insane. That's crazy. But the point is, is what, what is the first and foremost priority here? And, and that's what I think is really disturbing. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, like you said, it's important to note that these things don't have to be mutually exclusive. And they're only, it, it, it is really telling that they're, by making uh, simply the identity of the justice, the priority, what Biden and, you know, and, and obviously the people in the White House who are advising, like what they are essentially saying is that they are mutually exclusive, that, that, um, that you, in order to have one, you, you may not be able to have the other, but you'll definitely have one. When, yeah, I mean, when it, it, it raises the, easy it, to have both. Like, yeah, and it begs the question, like, would you nominate Condi Rice? Or Anita Hill, which is what well, people have been saying, and it, and it just totally opens you up to that charge. Um, I mean, to me, he's not going to do that. But, right, I mean, to me, what yeah. he, what could be done is, you know, what what I think could be done is, you go out and you say, listen, I'm definitely nominating somebody who's a pro worker, uh, pro environment, uh, justice, who takes the climate crisis seriously, who values unions, and who believes that the federal government. Uh, needs to better regulate corporations. And then you find one of the many black women who have records doing that and you nominate one of them. But instead, the political message that's being sent by the Democratic Party is that the first and foremost only thing that matters is identity and that policy comes second to that, that what the judge will do comes second to that. And and that that I think just on, on the pop like what kind of message are you sending when when you say that it, it's I, you know it's 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 saying that that the identity and representation is is more important than the records and the policy of the of the potential nominee and and I think you know I I think this idea like. This idea that you can't do both at the same time and that they both can't be priorities is ridiculous. And I don't think and to be clear, I don't think Biden has said he obviously hasn't said that explicitly. I'm just saying that it is a tell that the economic issues are just nowhere to be found in the discussion and certainly are extreme seem to be extremely far away from the from the quote unquote top priority of who and what a nominee should be. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree completely. And I think that it, it kind of is a reflection in a way of what we were, what we were saying about Roberts voting on the social issues um, or, you know, or even like at times trying to kick the can down the road on them a little bit to preserve the integrity of the court this is kind of the same thing where where Biden's promise that he made on the campaign trail was about the identity of the justice that he was going to uh, nominate at, at the time. Uh, I assume that he assumed that he was going to nominate to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And uh, yeah, instead, I mean, another woman did get on the court, but uh, she was Trump's nominee and it was Amy Coney Barrett, who, as you said, 
you know, has the shell stuff. Right, like, I mean, that's a good example. He's 100% going to vote to to overturn Roe the minute that she gets the chance. Like, granted, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a man, I'm not a woman, so maybe I'm being presumptuous here, but I would put forward that I don't think Amy Coney Barrett getting a seat on the Supreme Court is a huge victory for women's rights. I, I just, I don't, I don't think, I don't, like, her retrograde record on equal rights and, and equal pay and all sorts of other, and, you know, choice, obviously, that, like, her getting put on the court is not some wonderful victory for women's rights just because she's a woman. Like, I, 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 like, I, I just don't think that's, that's how it really works, that, that at minimum, what should be as important uh, uh, is what will the justice actually do on the court? And, and here's the thing. We have an example of a judge uh, who I think you can argue uh, that her life experience uh, and um, uh, a background as a person of color uh, uh, and, 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 and being from a, you know, not from a, you know, from, from being from a, a community of color, a, a minority group uh, that, that has informed her rulings in a good way. Sonia Sotomayor, she's not perfect, but she actually she's I think she's the only judge on the court, for instance, who um, doesn't vote the majority of times uh, with uh, the Chamber of Commerce, at least so far. And my point in bringing up Sotomayor is that is 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 an example of how these to reinforce your point, these things are not mutually exclusive. Right. There's not like, you know, you know, you you, you have to have a, uh, a, you know, somebody, uh, the nominee who 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 represents certain, uh, you know, this or that dem, uh, demographic group that's been un- underrepresented has to be, um, you know, completely divorced from uh, good, good policy and good rulings. I think these things work together. I'm just saying that what the Democratic Party is putting forward by saying that that its priority is representation uh, and it's that not necessarily equal in its priority is record and what the person will actually do is an incredibly uh, is an incredibly revealing tell about what this party uh, wants to prioritize. And, And of course, what I haven't said is, well, why would the party want to prioritize one thing over the other? And obviously the answer is because the Democratic Party is constantly trying to find ways of getting itself elected uh, and becoming popular by doing something that's impossible, by at, at one, on one hand appeasing its corporate donors and on the other hand purporting to solve problems uh, in society, many of which are created by those corporate donors. So I you know, identity and representation alone, divorced from policy, doesn't threaten corporate power. It doesn't. Uh, you know, policy threatens, p- potentially, threatens uh, the economic status quo. And so the Democratic Party w- is eager to focus on issues that don't fundamentally threaten its corporate donor base. It wants to stress those issues because those are issues it's not going to threaten its funding from. It's some Wall Street executive who's, who's 
financing the party is not going to be uh, uh, materially impacted uh, by uh, this or that issue that deal a uh, social issue, this or that issue that deals with um, uh, uh, representation, uh, the even voting rights issues. And again, I want to be very clear. All of those issues are super important. But for the most part, they do not threaten that Wall Street executive who's bankrolling the party. And so the party wants to focus on those issues and doesn't want to focus necessarily on, uh, you know, let's get a judge on the court, first and foremost, who wants to give the SEC power to put that Wall Street executive in jail when that Wall Street executive violates the law. Right. right. The, 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 that, that's not what like that's that's exactly what the party wants to avoid. It, the, the Democratic Party does not want that issue that kind of issue to be salient in the minds of voters, because then the Democratic Party has a real problem. Then the Democratic Party is caught between what voters might want and what its donors want. Right. And I think that, you know, another way to put it, even to to look at it historically, is to just kind of say, like, the reason that the billionaires and, and, and the corporate interests that are supporting the Democrats are not threatened by these issues is because from their perspective, I mean, they've, they've gained everything that they're going to gain from the, uh, from the historical conditions that created these problems. And so at this point, it doesn't really bother them to fix them. It's no longer a challenge to their power to challenge that uh, kind of institution or establishment. But I think that this is a good way to kind of transition here with the last 20 minutes and talk a little, and, and if anybody wants to, to jump in, feel free, but, but no need if you don't want to. Um, but I, I think that it's good to kind of talk a little bit about what the Senate fight is going to look like because Manchin and Cinema have been really emboldened, uh, you know, those two specifically, but I think that the right wing of the party in general has been really emboldened by their success, pushing back against the leader of the party, pushing against the, the, the president with his priorities and although Manchin and Cinema uh, tend to be pretty good, uh, pretty loyal on judges, uh, there's no real reason to think that they're going to go along with whoever Biden nominates. So I'm, I'm kind of curious as to what you think is going to happen when you need all 50 votes plus Kamala Harris. Uh, you, know, you can't really assume that you're going to get any Republicans. Uh, how do you think that's going to affect who Biden picks? And what do you think the fight's going to look like when it comes down to it? Well, I think uh, that Manchin and Cinema have made clear that 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 they basically answer to the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, we did a story on this about how they, I mean, uh, on the Build Back Better bill, they basically have been reading the Chamber of Commerce's, um, reading their their talking points, um, and so I, I think that 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 not to be defeatist about it, but I think that they're going to make that clear to Biden. Uh, they're going to make clear that you better put up a donor approved, uh, chamber of commerce approved justice, uh, or you're going to have a problem. And I think that, you know, you made me guess, my guess is that Biden will put up somebody who is palatable to the chamber of commerce. Now I want to say, I, I do think that, that Joe Biden, you know, I've been a critic of, of various things that he's done, but when it comes to court nominees, I mean, he has definitely at the lower court level put up far more nominees with a public interest background rather than a corporate background uh, than 
most other presidents, uh, certainly really all of the presidents in recent history. So I actually think that the White House up until this point has done a, has kind of overperformed. Granted, the expectations are low, the bar is low, but it's kind of overperformed when it comes to uh, uh, selecting uh, judicial nominees with with a with a somewhat different background uh, than Democratic and Republican presidents have in the past. So I, I do think there's still a chance, perhaps a slim chance, uh, to get a nominee uh, who's got a decent economic record uh, and a decent economic outlook. Uh, but but I I, I you know I, I go back to what I said at the beginning of, of this little exchange here, which is that. Mansion, Mansion, and Cinema—they answer to the Chamber of Commerce, like you know. So, so, and ultimately, I don't know if you can have a, a nominee who, uh, who who gets the vote of Chamber of Commerce senators, who also has a decent economic record. I just, I, I think that's the fundamental tension. But do you think you you do think then that it's possible that Mansion and Cinema, and maybe even other Democrats might break ranks on, on a nominee. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, do you, do you have any thoughts on the, on the ones who have been kind of suggested so far? Um, I, you know, I, I don't, I haven't, I really haven't done a deep dive on, on any of the records of the folks who have been floated at all. I, that's, that's like my next, my next little, little, little project here is to is to try to take a look at 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 who these folks on the on the alleged shortlist are yeah so i I guess that the number one is u.s uh court of appeals dc circuit uh katanji brown jackson and she she got 53 to 44 vote and the three i think were uh romney collins and graham uh, but I just don't think that it's realistic to to expect. I mean, maybe you could get one of them. But you're not going to get all three. Um, and, and you know, whoever it's going to be is going to be really, really tight. They, like the days of of having these, you know, very clear majorities uh, for you know, no, no matter who the party. I mean, that's that's over at this point. That's not going to happen anymore. And it's, yeah, so I'm just kind of. The fight's going to be pretty big, and it sounds like, from what you're saying, Chamber of Commerce is going to be, you know, in, involved in this and fighting, and there are going to be a lot of progressive groups fighting. Um, but I, I would, I think, I would probably put the chances of us having a new justice in place by the midterms pretty high, right? I mean, like, like, like given all the factors that we've talked about, would you, would you say that that's probably accurate? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think, I, 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 again, I think that. If you made me guess right now that Biden will probably pick the most um, economically palatable nominee to the to the Chamber of Commerce uh, in hopes of securing the votes of Mansion Cinema and and by the way I, I don't think Mansion and Cinema are alone I think they are actually um, they they block and tackle for a, a, a group of probably five to ten other senators in the Democratic Caucus. So I so I don't I do not foresee Joe Biden putting up somebody who, you know, somebody who's a labor lawyer. Like I don't see that happening. Um, I mean, I wish it would happen, but I just don't. I don't see that happening. And so I think you know he's probably going to have his eye on on getting someone, really anyone, through. Uh, and 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 I want to be clear. Like I like 
in some ways I, I, I get the impetus in the sense of, yeah, there are, you know, somebody who's Stephen Breyer, another Stephen Breyer, uh, is better than another Brett Kavanaugh, right? If, if, right, if, if a Republican yeah, president yeah, course, were, yeah. that, like, obviously, right, right. But, but my point is, is, is only that in theory, there's an opportunity to actually try to shift the court back to a more even handed court when it comes to the power dynamics between capital and labor. And, you know, the big money's got stuff locked down so, so, so well at this point. I mean, we are really living through the apex of corporate power in, in American history. I mean, truly, the, the whole idea of a new gilded age, I mean, it's really kind of a cliche, but it's because it's so true. I mean, we are really living in a moment where, you know, you have a Democratic Senate, a Democratic president. And if you're being honest, probably the best you can hope for is somebody who's slightly less chamber of commerce, uh, less of a chamber of commerce rubber stamp. Uh, and, and that's about it. But, the you know, and, and that's what living through the apex of corporate power really, really is. It's when even when the uh, even when the alleged workers party uh, is in power, uh, the Chamber of Commerce is almost certainly still calling the shots. Absolutely. So um, we're going to take uh, Dave now, uh, who's who's our caller here, uh, question or comment. Hey, guys, how's it going? Uh, hey there. Thanks, thanks for having yeah, me. Thanks. Yeah. Pleasure. Uh, David, just quick, um, enjoyed the movie. Congratulations on Thank that. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, just wanted to throw a question here. I don't want to take too much time away. Uh, I'm hearing what you're saying, listening in. And uh, on that last point that you were making, where you don't really see Biden kind of rocking the boat with this pick too much. And um, I have to kind of agree with the way I'm seeing it. My question to you that I would like to pose is like, what do you see Biden doing before midterms and then like further before the next election? What do you think are like his big course correction things that he's going to try to do? Because obviously... Um, the approval rating isn't great, and he seems adamant, at least in what he's saying publicly, that he wants to run again and run with Kamala on the ticket and kind of still take that leadership position. Um, and I kind of agree. It doesn't really make sense for him to rock the boat with this Supreme Court pick, or maybe it does. Um, but I don't think that it does from his point of view perspective. But I'm curious what you think. Um, you know, if you think he's not going to make that pick and you think that he's going to kind of play it safe with this pick, um, what do you think he's doing to kind of turn it around? And maybe like one last thing there is um, how do you think this ongoing conflict in Ukraine ties into this, if it does at all? Um, thanks for taking my question, guys. I'm enjoying the conversation. Sure. I mean, I think that what Biden is first and foremost is a guy who thinks that getting a deal any deal is what the public wants. So I think that I've been making this joke on social media for months now that that the Build Back Better Act went from a $6 trillion proposal to a $4 trillion proposal to a $2 trillion proposal to a $1.8 trillion proposal. And we're on our way to that scene in trains, planes, and automobiles where it's John Candy offering two bucks and a used Casio. And I, I, I've been joking about that because I think that what Joe Biden, Joe Biden doesn't seem to really care about what's actually in the bill. He just wants to be able to run out and say, I got a bill. I got a deal. Because the, the, this is sort of a, 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 an article of faith in, in Democratic D.C., which is that 
if I can go out and say, I quote, got something done, then that's what I can go sell on the campaign trail. And it doesn't matter whether, whether what I got done actually did anything, whether what I got done actually materially improved people's lives. And so, but, but I think that's Joe Biden's calculation. I just got to get things done, just make it look like I'm doing something. And, and, and my, my, my point on this is that I actually think it does matter whether what you quote got done actually did anything. I think that people want to feel like their lives have materially improved. And I think Biden has done some th- like, look, I was the, the, the first bill that Biden passed, the uh, the uh, ARPA, the rescue plan that actually really did do things that, that actually really delivered like real benefits to people. Um, I think the problem with it was it wasn't permanent, but I was encouraged by that. Like he actually figured out, like, I just got to cut a check and I'm not going to be Obama who cut a check to 13 bankers, you know, with the, with the bailout. I'm, I'm going to cut a check to millions of people and that's going to help them. And I think that they've, they've kind of lost that, that story. They've lost that, that idea. And now they're whittling down the build back better. Well, not granted like mansion and cinema and whoever else, you know, they're playing the role of rotating villain and, 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 but again, I think there's a little bit of a performance in that, which is, in other words, the game is rigged that mansion and cinema are sort of doing the dirty work of other senators and maybe hey, perhaps on build back better. Can I ask when you say that you see his motivation as just trying to get it done for the, basically like the sake of the optics of it. Um, quick question on that. Do you think it is all, or do you think it's more trying to get it done to say he got it done? Or is it that he's scared of not being able to get it done and dealing with, you know, kind of the inverse of that, where if he doesn't get anything passed, you know, the optics of that for people who don't really pay much attention, but just can see a message of he didn't get his thing passed. Sure. Yes. Yeah. I mean, sure. Yeah, it's, I, I, if, it's if, yes. If I and just jump in for one sec. Like, yeah. I, I think that one thing as well to understand about Biden is that, you know, he what when I look at the way that he's acting and when I look at, you know, just like the, the things that he does, it seems to me that he's a lot of what he a lot of his strategy is a reaction to like the last two or three years of the of the Obama administration, right? And that like you know, popularity plummeting. Trump came out of nowhere. They weren't getting anything done. The Republicans wouldn't work with them. And so you know, blah. blah, blah. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to talk about it like the way that Biden saw it, right? But and and so he wants to avoid that. So I, I definitely agree with you, David. That that uh, the the need to get a deal done, the need to look like you're doing something to him, is really really important. I think that that has a lot to do with it. Yeah, and I think I think that the, the 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 look. I think that Biden. It's like it's like yes and right. Yes, you need to look like you're getting something done politically, but also yes, the thing you get done actually needs to do something, right? It, it, it has to be both, because I think the I think part of the problem in democratic politics has been presidents uh, waving around pieces of paper saying, hey, look, I got a deal. I got a bill. I, I, I did this thing. And then the public saying, wait a minute, th- that didn't help me. Wait a minute. I, I, nothing changed for me. You're, you're waving around in my face that you got some historic, awesome thing done. And it didn't really fix much of anything. Or made it worse. Or, or made it worse. Sure. And, I, and I, I'll give you an example, probably arguably the, the, the least egregious example of this, but it's still, it's still an example, which is think about Obamacare. 
Obamacare actually did a few things. It actually did, you know, the getting rid of pre-existing conditions and, and, and all that. But it was waved around like the greatest healthcare reform uh, that that man could ever conceive of. It was waved around as we have solved the healthcare crisis in America. Uh, and I will, again, grant that there are a couple things that Obamacare did, uh, almost very, they, you know, minimal things that should have been done decades ago. But I mean, finally, a lot worse before, like, like that's, it's, it's in context, right? A- absolutely. Yeah. Like, I, of course, we, of course, it's better than what was before it. Of right. course. Yeah. But the, but the problem was, is that in waving it around, in watering it down, getting not having a public option in just absolutely acquiescing to almost everything that the insurance industry wanted and then waving it around as the greatest thing ever ended up raising expectations, people feeling like, hey, this great thing has been done. And then two years later, it was like, wait a minute, I'm still getting crushed by insurance bills. I'm still getting crushed by the corporate for-profit uh, healthcare industry. I thought I was told that this thing was that, that that we fixed this thing, and and so my point is is that the the democratic formula of saying we got this great thing done, and the democratic uh, contradiction of promising to solve problems, uh, and then appeasing the corporate donors who created the problems. All of that colludes to create a situation where. The party runs out and says, we got something great done. It actually isn't as great uh, as what it says it is because of the compromises it makes to appease its corporate donors. And then people are pissed off, right? Like, that's the problem. And that's going to be the problem with Joe Biden running out with a watered down, gutted, build back better bill. He'll get a momentary bump in the polls for getting something done. And then the problem will be is that if that thing that he's going to wave around and say is the greatest thing ever that he got done doesn't actually materially improve people's lives, then a lot of people are going to are going to feel burned once again. Now, can I ask a question on that? Because I, I actually I agree with everything that you've said there. And I think that like what you're laying out there is this idea that because of this inaction or inadequacy of action in lack of substance and policy, you're left with people who are just hungry for something else, which is what creates the opportunity for you know, other people to come in and take advantage of that. And then it, it certainly feels like we've just reset the board back to 2015 or 2015, yeah, 15 leading up into 2016, where, you know, the end of the Biden administration will feels like it's going to feel like the end of the Obama administration. And like that kind of set the board for 2016, which was such a crazy election. And so the question that I want to pose to you, which is a challenge to you and like I said, I think we I agree with everything you said, and I think I have an understanding of where um, our views kind of differ. And, and it comes down to like what you're talking about I, is such dire things about like the regression of this nation and like our lack of adequate health care that it's tough when we have leaders who are taking up the mantle of it. Like I think about Bernie Sanders in 2016. And you see what happens to him in the Democratic primary. And it's tough when something like that happens. And Bernie Sanders himself, like, doesn't call it out, gives the endorsement to Clinton. She ends up losing. They run it back in 2020. You know, his rhetoric in 2020 is completely on a different level than it was in 2016. And it feels like, you know, if these things are as dire 
as people say they are, which I feel they are, and you kind of like feel our country regressing around you, like we come down to these points where it comes down to, are we going to turn it into a fight? And like most recently, you know, the floor vote on Medicare for all that happened with Nancy Pelosi, that was a whole big deal. But I think that that was, um, that caught so much attention just because it was emblematic of a bigger, um, you know, repeating pattern that we're seeing that ties in with Bernie Sanders 2016, really getting cheated out of a democratic election, but then not really calling it out. And so I pose to you, like, to me, it feels like I agree this democratic party and the Obama administration, they're really not going to do anything. They're not interested in doing anything. What they're interested in is looking like they've done something for history's sake. But, um, you know, like where are the fighters fighting uh so i gotta run here in one sec but i i will say this i think that um without i i i'll put it this way i think that what has demoralized a lot of people uh a lot of progressives is not only you know, Bernie not winning in 2020, and you know, I worked for Bernie, so I get that. But, but this feeling like the people in there are not really fighting as hard as they could. And I, I will put it this way. Um, I think there's, and I'm not weighing in specifically on, on Bernie. I'm saying, you know, whether it's the Progressive Caucus or, or you know, uh, liberal senators, I, I think there's some truth to that feeling that there could be more that those lawmakers are doing. Uh, I, but I also think, and this doesn't excuse it, but I also think a lot of the, um, a lot of that frustration is a, 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 a difference and a conflict over tactics rather than values. Meaning, I'll put it this way. I don't, I, I tend to believe that Bernie Sanders, for instance, really does want to get a really good set of climate policies in the Build Back Better bill. Uh, I think he's probably upset about what has gone on uh, in, in whittling that bill down. I think he's still trying to get something, you know, the, the old half a loaf instead of, you know, at least get the half a loaf if you're not going to get the full loaf. So I think tactically he has a theory on how to at least get half a loaf. And other people have another theory about how to get a half a loaf. And, and the, the, the frustration is to see uh, somebody like him or the squad or whoever uh, not agree with you tactically uh, and perceive that to be selling out. I don't think it's selling out. I don't think it's corruption. I don't I, but I do think that, that, yeah, like there's a little bit of intestinal fortitude question that needs to be asked about the people who are in there. Uh, who say they are fighting uh, for us, like, do they, are they actually willing to make things really uncomfortable, uh, not only for their party leadership, but for themselves? And I, I think Bernie Sanders at times has been willing to do that. I think at other times, I wish he would, he would do it more. Um, but, I, but I agree with you in the sense of like, does that perception create disillusionment? Yes, it does. does the perception that the people who are in there uh, not going all the way, even if it's an honest tactical dispute, does that does that demoralize people? 
Yes, it does. I, and, and frankly, I think there's a larger lesson here for the entire Democratic Party, not just the progressive wing of the party, which is that when the public perceives the ruling party to not be actually fighting in a real way to help everybody, that pisses voters off. And the Democratic Party um, doesn't do a very good job of, of even looking like it's fighting for regular people every day. I mean, the last thing you would really, if, if we're being honest here, which, we are, you know, it's not a pleasant kind of admission to say, but like the last thing you'd actually think when you look at the way Joe Biden handles himself as president is that that guy's waking up every day and really, truly, absolutely every minute of every day fighting for the working class of this country. Like nobody thinks that, right? No one thinks that at all. And because it's because it's frankly, it's, it's not true. We, we've seen that he he's he, it's not that he's a terrible, bad guy or I mean, I have my, you know, I've reported on him forever and all these corrupt things that he's done. But he's not a particularly awful you know, guy. He's a standard run of the mill Democrat. And the thing is, is that they don't do a good job of even looking like they're actually, truly doing everything they can to fight for the working class. Joe Biden has a stack of unsigned executive orders on his desk to cancel student debt, uh, to force down the price of, of prescription drugs, to use the Defense Production Act to produce uh, various things in the pandemic that are, that are absolutely necessary. He, he hasn't signed them. Somebody who's fighting every single day for the working class is signing those executive orders ASAP. He's not doing it. So all of that is to say that I don't think it's just the, you know, people perceive Bernie or the squad or the progressive caucus is not fighting. I think the problem is that people perceive the entire Democratic Party as representing the status quo and not really serious about actually waging a real fight uh, for the things that it purports to believe in every, every time there's an election, right? These are the Democrats who go out and say, I'm going to fight for this and fight for that. Then they get in power and, no, and it, it never even looks like they're fighting for anything. Yeah, a lot of time it doesn't look like they try, and and I I understand the frustration uh, being directed at you know the politicians who who believe things closest to you, uh, and and it can be very frustrating to watch them uh, you know just work with a party that that doesn't really seem to have any interest in that. But David, we've uh, we've had you here probably longer than uh, than you expected, so. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you want to just tell everybody where they can find your stuff and, and Daily Poster, all that kind of stuff? Sure. You can find it at dailyposter.com. I hope folks will check it out. Uh, it's dailyposter.com. And check it out. Subscribe. Uh, you know, join us at our, our – we have live events all the time. And, 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 hey, thanks so much for doing this. It's been a really great discussion. I really appreciate it. Hey, hey, absolutely. My pleasure. And, uh, yeah, uh, just uh, hit that subscribe button if you're listening on the app, and uh, we'll see you next week with, with Abby Martin and Richard Wolf. All right, thanks a lot, guys, and we'll see you next time.